0: from somebody who has practiced medicine for 15 years, I'll tell you that it is not like anything I've ever seen before. There's a lot of discussion and a
1: lot of innovation around how to make sure that we can cope with this new normal, but the basics are still the same. Wash your hands, wear a mask, stay six feet away from other folks.
2: It's a layering effect, robust testing, effective isolation, contact tracing is a layer. Mask wearing is a layer. Business mitigation measures is a layer. Doing something about these nightclubs that are going on every weekend, that's another layer. So there's all these layers and we need to
0: use all the layers. There's a public demand for an answer, for a cure, for a drug that works. And just because that demand exists doesn't mean that science will bend to the public will. Science has to generate those solutions as it usually does, by conducting good, solid studies that take time.
3: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford, and today, our COVID-19 roundtable returns. Arizona's new case rate trend is significantly upward, putting our state in the national spotlight. The governor issued a new executive order allowing local governance action regarding face masks. An inexpensive steroid has emerged as a possible COVID-19 treatment. Heck, yesterday, it was announced that the Apple Watch will soon give you an automatic 20-second hand-washing countdown whenever it senses the combination of your hand motions and the water's flow. In other words, it's been just another fairly intense two weeks of COVID time that sometimes felt like two years, and we're here to help you process and analyze it all. Once again, Dr. Nick Vasquez was unable to join us due to his emergency room duties, and Dr. Amish Shaw was just barely able to squeeze in a conversation, calling into the podcast while on a short break during his own emergency room shift. You'll hear more details on the numbers, new municipal ordinances, and much more in just a moment, but we're gonna say this again up front. Whether it's an ordinance in your town or not, mask up, AZ. My mask protects you and your mask protects me. Stay home if you're not feeling well, wash your hands with soap for at least 20 seconds, Practice social distancing whenever possible, and when it's not possible, hashtag mask up AZ. Alright, let's get to it. It's time to talk about healthcare, public health, policy, and community as we move past the longest day of the year and continue adapting to life with COVID-19. Today we are back with another COVID-19 roundtable sitting here at the round table as usual, Will Humble. How are you, sir? Howdy, folks. Good. Glad to have you. Marcus Johnson, welcome back.
0: Afternoon. Glad to be here.
3: And then our new guest extraordinaire, Dr. Amish Shah. Dr. Shah, how are you?
0: I'm doing really well. Thank you again for having me. It's wonderful to be with you guys.
3: So just before we got on the air, Will, I said to you, I can't believe what I'm looking at, that two weeks ago, Arizona had... 8,700 cases in that week. And then last week through June 21st, Arizona had 16,885 new cases.
2: It's really ramping up big time. And it's not just increased testing capacity. It's way more
3: community spread.
2: So how much Things is, are getting a
3: lot worse. How much has testing capacity increased? And what percentage of that total I just talked about can be attributed to new testing? I haven't run
2: the, the numbers in the last week, but between May 15th and June 14th, testing capacity increased 17%. And the number of cases increased 138%. At the media conference two weeks ago, when there were people suggesting that this was because of increased spread, that's when I went back with Dr. Gerald and reran those numbers. And that's where you could see if if there's a sliver of truth in the increased testing, it was like 17% increase over that month. But the increase in cases is way more than that. And things have even gotten unglued since then. Remember back when 1,000 cases seemed like a lot per day? Hmm. You know, now if we got 1,000, we'd be like throwing confetti. We're at 3,500 some days. And it's not equally spread across the state. So if you go to ASU Biodesign's website, you can see what it looks like county by county, and it's super interesting. The county that is looking the worst in terms of per capita spread right now is Yuma and Santa Cruz counties. Santa Cruz especially is,
3: is really a steep curve. Marcus, you're following the numbers?
1: On following the numbers, the one thing that I was surprised by that I hadn't seen before was that at the governor's press conference last week, they actually showed one slide where it had the percent positivity by different regions of the state. I hadn't seen that information before, and it was something that I was really curious about. Like the ASU data and the state data that's public shows the number of cases increasing by county, but I had not seen the percent positive rates in different regions of the state. And I was shocked to see that in places like Yuma and Santa Cruz and others down in southern Arizona. So Santa Cruz County is at 31% positivity. Yuma County is at 20% positivity. These are positivity rates that we don't see anywhere else in the nation. I haven't seen in other places in the nation.
3: Let's talk about the front lines. Dr. Shaw, you barely made this interview today because you're a busy man in the ER. I
0: hey, um, I'm speaking to you from the ER right now. I'm on shift. I've been working three or four times a week. And every shift that I work, I see a handful of COVID patients. I mean, very likely to be COVID. Again, I don't get the tests back the very day or the next day even. It takes a few days. We've seen an uptick. There used to be about one patient or maybe two patients per shift that I was seeing. Now, we're certainly seeing more than that. It's hard to quantify that more because variability from day to day is significant. So some days you won't see any and some days you'll see five. So it, it just kind of goes like that.
3: Will, last week, the governor held his press conference. Talk about the response that the state is offering and what has ensued since that press conference.
2: Here's one of the things I want to say about that is that advocacy works. Think back to what happened over the last two weeks. It was really that over a thousand doctors sent letters to the governor saying, We urge you to take additional mitigation measures, including a mask requirement. So they were on board. The Hospital Association, Hospital Systems, A managed care organization sent letters. I did tons of interviews and did everything I could to spread the word to the people of Arizona that we needed additional mitigation measures, not just mask wearing, but the other things that he announced at that press conference. It was remarkable how close his decisions tracked with what people were asking him to do. So to me, it just shows that advocacy works. I don't think data drove this. It was people that drove this and really pushed for those policy changes. So number one was to at least let cities put in a mask requirement in public. And the cities jumped all over it. City councils scheduled their next meeting within 24 hours, or they noticed it because you have the public meeting, you have to notice it. And they were voting by Friday. So within 48 hours, they were voting on new ordinances. And you could take off the list, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Tucson, mesa on and on and on and counties
3: i was going to say more surprising to me was that the counties stepped up
2: maricopa county jumped in not just in the unincorporated areas it covers the entire county and they did that by friday also and pima by saturday we talked about this two weeks ago on our podcast, the importance of engaging locals in this response, and now it's finally happened. All they had to do was get their handcuffs taken off, which did happen finally last Thursday when the executive order took effect. That's a big thing. They announced a $10 million commitment to buy additional PPE and to pay for testing at skilled nursing and assisted living facilities. That was a win. Also, the cities can get out there and put together uh, compliance programs, and businesses are no longer just asked to comply with CDC mitigation measures, they're expected to comply and cities can enforce those mitigation measures. And so they still need to take that action.
0: wanna add just one thing. I did notice that Florida and Texas put into place similar policies. Texas had a judge that allowed for individual municipalities to basically say that masks were required, but Greg Abbott did not step in and issue an order to the contrary. And then in Florida, the mass policy was similar. So I am wondering whether or not governors across the country are kind of coordinating these efforts. I do know that they have a weekly phone call. At least that's what they had a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Dr. Shaw, are you heartened by this? I like the fact that masks are required in public because we've looked at that data and that literature, and we know that the evidence has clearly shown that, to this point, and with the studies and information that we have now, that those are a public health benefit. So heartened by that, I think, especially indoors. Some of the evidence that has also come out shows that indoor spread is much more common than outdoor spread, so requiring masks indoors is probably going to be the most bang for your buck in terms of reducing transmission.
2: That's what I've been saying over and over and over again, that for people that'll listen, is that single highest return on investment intervention that we have is a cloth mask in public places. You could cut up a t-shirt. Yep. That's the cost. Mm -hmm. And the benefit is enormous. Everything else has a big cost to it. Contact tracing. you got to hire a bunch of people, get them into the field. There's a lot of things that we need to do and to continue to do to turn this thing around. But cloth masks is a no-brainer. Huge ROI. That's a good thing. So a lot of bad things happened in the last two weeks. But there are some good things, too. But we won't see the results of those good things for at least a couple weeks because you got incubation period, you got implementation time. It'd be interesting when we do this again in two weeks, what we see as a result. And by the way, these mitigation things can slow down the spread from what they would have been, but it doesn't mean that it's going to slow the
3: spread from where we are today. Right, because our base is much higher than it was. Oh, yeah. By the way, if you live in Arizona and you don't at least have a bandana, you haven't lived in Arizona long enough, there's your first-level mask right there.
1: I just wanted to pick up, too, on the mask fees. That's an area where I think public health has become a lot more skilled in the past two or three months. You know, three months ago, we had conversations on this podcast about whether or not masks were the right way to go. Like, was the evidence base there actually to support the fact that masks used at a population level we're actually going to decrease the spread of communicable diseases and the evidence just really wasn't as convincing as we wanted it to be our thoughts have evolved since then based on the amount of literature that has come out it really is a no-brainer to be using this right now and the research supports it
3: i'll tell you i was shocked there was a great clips store not in our state but in another state and two of the hairstylists tested positive for covid and the county that they were in sent out the contact tracers and not a single one of the patrons contracted COVID because the two hairstylists were wearing a mask at all times.
2: And probably had good hand hygiene and stuff
3: too. Must have. Marcus, do we think that we have finally found something somewhat of a rallying cry that replaces flatten the curve and now it's mask up?
1: That's part of it. I don't know if we've identified something that's as big of a rallying cry as flatten the curve. It has definitely caught fire on social media and you see the governor's office has used it and that was created by a number of local partners here in the state. So that's definitely caught on. I actually saw the governor's press conference and saw him firmly using the language contain and decrease the spread. Or was it contain and and lessen the spread? Something like that. But it was the first time that it wasn't just about reopen responsibly. The rhetoric has definitely changed to try to decrease the spread and to contain this virus.
3: There's another individual who actually put out a plan months ago. I only stumbled on it in the last week and a half. Paul Romer, economist. His rallying cry is test and isolate. He says our main mission as a country should be to get every American to get tested twice a month. And if they test positive, to isolate. That would be more important than contact tracing. Will, what do you think? Here's the thing. Contact tracing is
2: really two things. It's a case investigation, and then it's contact tracing. And so the testing part is identifying infected people, and doing a case investigation and getting them into isolation, that's the isolation part of isolation and quarantine. And so the contact tracing is when you are tracking down those cases that go into isolation and you do the contact tracing and put them into quarantine, which doesn't mean that they're in isolation. It means that they can still be at home, they could be with their family members, they don't need to be isolated in a single bedroom. So I agree with that, but to make it work, you gotta have a fast turnaround time. And that's a big problem in Arizona. And Dr. Shaw, you've talked about it already, that you can test a patient and the results don't come back for a few days. Well, that's happening in the community too. Primary care doctor's offices and other places, even the testing blitzes and stuff, you get tested and you find out Eight days later, you've been infected with the virus. And so in the meantime, because you're probably asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, you're probably out in the community, going to work, going to stores, all that stuff without knowing that you're positive because the turnaround time was bad. What you just described, testing everybody twice a month, that's a good thing. With a fast turnaround time, even better thing. You get them into isolation, another good thing. I look at it as a layer. It's a layering effect. That's one of the layers. Robust testing. Effective isolation, contact tracing is a layer, mask wearing is a layer, business mitigation measures is a layer, doing something about these nightclubs that are going on every weekend, that's another layer. So there's all these layers, and we need to use all the layers
3: if we're gonna avoid going over capacity or another shutdown order or both. Now, Paul Romer says, if we test them twice a month, we could go back to a fully open economy. And that's, of course, his argument, is if we need to spend... And he estimates somewhere between 73 and 100 billion dollars in one year to do that testing twice a month. We need an economy that's fully flowing in order to pay for that. And if we do, the payback will be huge because our economy, he estimates, generates 500 billion dollars a month. And he's
2: assuming this is a two day turnaround on the tests. And he's assuming people are going to go into isolation and like follow the recommendations. True. It It all boils down to human behavior in the end.
1: And it assumes that testing is widely available and easily accessible for all people. Yes. I mean, right now, if you want to go get tested, even if you're asymptomatic, say you're thinking about having your in-law or something come into town and you want to make sure you can get tested with a quick turnaround time to make a wise decision. There's only a handful of locations where that sort of testing is available to the general public right now. And even then, it's signing up for a list, figuring out where you need to go to, sitting and waiting in your car, waiting for the people to come. If they have the saliva test, great. If they don't have the easy saliva test, then it's the nasopharyngeal swab, which is not a pleasant thing for most people to do. So yes, the turnaround time is important, but also how much of a barrier to entry is there in order for people to go and get tested?
3: His point was, we're going to invest 73 to $100 billion to make sure that there are enough tests available for everyone to get tested twice a month. That's his rallying cry. Get enough testing capacity out there through block grants to the states and make it happen And then we can fully reopen and we can be confident that we're moving around amongst a bunch of people who are not infected. It's a good goal. It sounds kind of ivory tower-ish.
2: Who's going to build all the test kits? I mean, I agree. We need as many test kits as we can possibly manufacture. But to say what he just said and just say, I'm going to snap my fingers, it's going to happen because I threw money at it. The economy doesn't work that way. You can throw all these incentives at creating more test kits, but still factories are factories. Supply chains are supply chains, and you're going to be able to create some number of tests, but you've got to use all these other mitigation measures at the same time, or it's foolish right. to just put all your eggs in one basket, which is what this guy, whoever it was in the ivory
3: tower said. Not to mention Abbott just came under fire for their test. That doesn't actually seem to work very well. The one that was supposed to give rapid results.
2: The antigen test. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Are you guys using the antigen test in the hospital setting? No, we're doing the PCR test only. So we're not doing any other type of tests, no serology, no antigen test.
2: Is the concern on that rapid test that it's the specificity and sensitivity isn't there for what you need clinically?
0: To be honest, I just haven't seen it in my own personal experience. If it's being used in other hospitals across Arizona, I wouldn't be able to comment on that. I I just don't, I simply don't know if anybody is using it. I would say that again, whenever new tests come out, those numbers, the sensitivity and specificity numbers are always preliminary and kind of in flux. So we don't know how to evaluate that test until we have some more experience with it. So those numbers will get revised as that particular test gets used more.
3: And that is one of the challenges. Everything's new every single component is new and so there have been a number of articles recently debating whether people have immunity after they get it and if so for how long is it two to three months is it six months is it forever but nobody really knows
1: i don't know how many of these interventions are actually new like we've known how to decrease the spread of this virus since basically day one it's stay away from other people Wear a mask if you're in close contact with other people. And if you feel sick, don't go around other people. Don't go into work. And those central tenants, they've been the exact same this entire time. There's a lot of discussion and a lot of innovation around how to make sure that people stay away from one another, how to make sure that we can kind of cope with this as we're getting back to a new normal. But the basics are still the same. Wash your hands. Wear a mask, stay six feet away from other folks.
3: On Saturday, I'm sitting here looking at all this stuff, and I just wrote, uncertainty kills. It's the uncertainty. It's the amount of debate over something like wearing a mask. we were spending all this time as a society debating whether or not we should wear a mask. Marcus just said... We've known all along that was a good thing to do. We always knew it wasn't harmful. At the beginning,
2: we didn't know how much good it would do. Remember in March? Yeah, At our first one? Yeah. Now we know. The literature is robust. It's really clear. There's a good study from the National Academy of Sciences proceedings published a couple weeks ago. It shows a correlation between mask wearing in New York and decline of the virus after controlling for some of the other variables. So... It always made intuitive sense that it should work. But now we have clear evidence that it's super effective, high return on investment. And now you see it. You see what a mandate has done. I mean, it's improved significantly out there in a the community. Just a simple mandate. People are
3: now complying. Dr. Shaw, admittedly, the media likes to make a good headline. The Arizona Republic ran a story interviewing a whole bunch of healthcare personnel, doctors, frontline nurses, et cetera, and Mm -hmm. characterized COVID-19 as quote unquote, a beast. And I don't even know how to tell you how our hearts break, said one of the physicians.
0: I believe I've quoted in that article.
3: I guess I should have read the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) Help people understand what the experience is for you on a daily basis that would lead to an article of that nature.
0: I think that we're feeling that we're talking about this and trying to explain to the public the scale, the scope of this pandemic and how it is different from what we have seen in the past. And it's disheartening, I think, to hear some of the alternative narratives that are out there that talk about how it's not as bad as we thought it was going to be or that it's comparable to the flu or something like that. There have been some competing narratives out there like that. And I think that from the perspective of physicians, nurses, and healthcare professionals have been saying since the beginning, this is not like anything we've seen in our career. Please listen. It becomes frustrating. And it also, we, we run out of superlatives to say to people to express how they should be taking this situation differently and then they should be acting in ways to save lives and it takes the public to mount a coordinated effort in order to really stop this from going forward. I think that that article is sort of expressing, once again, our collective advice and our our experience and and trying to convey that information to the public and say, please listen, this is important and to grab everybody's attention and, and to get them to do all the right things. From somebody who has practiced medicine for 15 years, I'll tell you that it is not like anything I've ever seen before. The rate of death that you get from this is much different from any other flu we've certainly seen, from any other seasonal illness that comes around. And so when you start seeing this kind of an illness with the numbers that we're seeing, all we can do is plead with the public. And I think that's the sentiment that you're getting in the media article.
3: And this comes from a medical professional who has to see a whole lot of frustrating situations on a regular basis prior to COVID-19.
0: And yet this one stands out dramatically. Oh, absolutely. There's no comparing this to anything else. I was in New York during the time when H1N1, I believe it was 2009, came through. And there was some level of fear out there. And after seeing the numbers, reviewing the numbers, having a lot of people come in, I remember I was working at one of the the big hospitals there in in Manhattan. We'd see a, a bump in the volume of ER patients who wanted testing and they were worried. But ultimately, I, myself, tried to explain to the patients that there wasn't really a whole lot to worry about, quite frankly, because when we actually got an idea of what the death rate was and what the morbidity and mortality was from that, it really wasn't all that impressive. I remember having these conversations saying, look, I know the media is kind of all over this, but, but I'm not convinced that this is truly an illness that that I would lose a lot of sleep over. Yes, it will affect some people and it may ultimately lead to some people's deaths just like the flu does every year. But that was a different virus in 2009. This is a completely different situation. We as medical professionals are certainly not trying to make anybody scared. We're just trying to tell the public what is, tell them the truth the way we we see it. We don't want panic out there. That doesn't help the situation. We just want people to understand what the facts are. I think that even looking in context at one other situation with h1n1 that did happen i think that we're looking at this clear-eyed and saying well here's what it is and we also have to be very honest with the public in a certain sense that when you look at the infection fatality rate for people who are under 45 and have no medical problems and especially those people under 20 it's very very low I mean, you, you have to be honest about that. It's just that the rate for people who are over 60 or 65 and with medical problems is much, much higher, tremendously higher to the point where it's driving the entire infection fatality rate to the level that we, we think it is now, you know, based on several studies from 0.17% all the way to 0.6%, somewhere in there. I, I hope that kind of explains what we've seen and, and how it falls into the context of the practice of medicine.
1: Since we've seen so many cases increase over the past few weeks, yet the majority of them are attributable to younger populations, ages 20 to 44, we shouldn't be as worried then, correct?
0: Well, those people that are 45 and less, just anecdotally, have been out and about, and they've been interacting since the stay-at-home order was lifted. And, of course, some of them have jobs and things like that that they need to go out for. It's not that everybody's out there just partying. So then, then what you'll see is you'll, you'll see the virus spread among that population. And again, if you, if you look at the demographics that you see from the ADHS website, 57% of the folks that tested positive are 45 and less. Am I specifically worried about that group? Well there will be some people that die from it in that group. Again if you look at the deaths from the ADHS website, which is consistent across states and countries, you'll see that the rate for them is, is low. But the problem isn't just that if you look at those folks they're increasing the prevalence overall in society and at a rapid clip it's increasing the problem is it's going to diffuse into the senior population some of those folks are maybe working at senior care facilities it gets into one assisted living facility senior a home or nursing home then a whole lot of people in that nursing home will get infected in a short amount of time, and then you will start to see ICU beds consumed and deaths. I'm just trying to make a nuanced point that the rate of spread right now is in a certain demographic. Eventually, it will diffuse to other demographics, which is where much more morbidity and mortality will come from.
3: As a medical professional, what is more frustrating at this time? Lack of resources like PPE, lack of resources like adequate staffing, lack of treatment options, or the general public's behavior?
0: Well, I think it's different for every physician and where they work. For me, PPE hasn't really been much of a problem. I also will say that with regard to staffing, the people that I work with have been acting like heroes showing up to work enthusiastically and diligently taking care of all of the patients that we come across. I do know that there are some places where staffing is an issue. It doesn't happen, not to my knowledge anyway, here in the Valley. Eventually, we will have issues where people are either out sick or burned out and working too many long shifts. I've seen some social media posts from nurses and maybe some physicians talking about how the increased acuity and the increased load has taken a toll on them. Certainly that is not sustainable over a very, very long term. And then with regard to the public, I really believe that the vast, vast majority of Arizonans are acting responsibly and doing the right thing. And we do have to keep that in mind. Provide as much encouragement as we can in a very patient and professional way to everybody and say, please, it's the polite thing help your neighbor, help us help you. And I think that message resonates. So I think that the frustration sometimes for me, if I had to think about what it is that frustrates me the most, is this idea that I, I can't necessarily get people the answers that they need right away. And again, I'm an emergency physician, So I want to get these people tested and give them a definitive answer and then tell them, look, this is what you need to do. But since the test comes back two or three days later, I can only tell them, I don't know, I think so. I think you should self-quarantine for 14 days and we'll wait for your test results. And, you know, I wish I could tell them more definitively. If
3: we were to send you a GIF from the movie Jerry Maguire starring Tom Cruise, where he's screaming, help me, help you. Would you want us to pass that on to the general public? (laughs) (laughs)
0: I I don't know what to tell you about that. I I think that uh, we are just trying to do our jobs professionally. I think that you're seeing the physicians, the nurses coming from a place of caring. What people choose to do is really up to them. Our job, though, is to be as professional and caring as we can be. And and that's our duty and our honor.
2: Well, you were asking people what Is the most frustrating things between A, B, C, and D, those options that you gave out? For me, that's such an easy thing to answer. And that is, it's so frustrating to see public policy not change with the data. Hmm. And that's the thing. It's like on the 26th of May is when we began to see the rebound in new cases. When you look at new cases divided by total cases, within four or five days of the 26th, by the first... (laughs) of June it was really clear where the trajectory of this thing was going and the universe is saying we got to give the cities back some local control so they can do something to enforce mitigation standards for businesses we've got to put a mask wearing requirement out there we need to increase our testing capacity we've got to get contact tracing mobilized. We've got to do a better job in assisted living and skilled nursing and get some RFPs let to do better infection control and more PPE in those places. And then day after day after day and then weeks go by. The policy doesn't change. And there's these intervention tools that are sitting there on the table. Not only are they not being used, but there's someone saying you can't use them. The city local control thing. That to me was the most frustrating thing was to see tried and true measures, high ROI things, sitting on the table, not being used, and doing the kind of advocacy and building a chorus of advocates, and yet... Week after week, nothing changed. Finally, it did last Wednesday. To me, that was the most frustrating thing to see three weeks worth of lack of movement where public policy should have been mobilized much
3: earlier because the data was really clear. Dr. Shaw, do you have time for one more question?
0: I'm waiting for the lightning round because, uh, as you know, I'm really good at that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here it comes. Hydroxychloroquine, Mm -hmm. remdesivir, dexamethasone. Mm -hmm.
0: Do we fall for it again? Once again, there's a public demand for an answer, for a cure, for a drug that works. And just because that demand exists doesn't mean that science will bend to the public will. Science has to generate those solutions as it usually does by conducting good, solid studies that take time. And and they take effort and they take money and and then they go through a very important peer review process where people weigh in with their concerns, these are peers, and then the authors can go back and revise those studies and, and design other studies that come off of those. I think there's been a real push to speed a lot of that process up because of the pandemic that we're facing and and the the scale of the problem it doesn't quite work that way in in real life it st- those those things still need to be done properly and we got caught up in that a little bit because we're trying to get on top of it and 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 of course the media is right on top of it as well. So I think you've seen some false starts for that reason. I don't think science is working any different than it ever really has. And and with more studies and more meaning patients enrolled um, we started to see initially maybe hydroxychloroquine started to show some promise, but then eventually we, we saw with more and more studies that it really wasn't doing a whole heck of a lot and potentially harmful. Remdesivir, again, jury is still out on this. As much as we want an answer, we don't have an answer. And, and sometimes the, you know, the, the better part of valor is, is doing nothing and saying, I don't know, which is the truth. Now with dexamethasone, I, I did look at some of the evidence that was presented. And what I saw in the study was that the number of people was around 6,000, which was good. If I'm not mistaken, it was controlled as well. I'm not certain whether the study was blinded, which would have made a big difference. And then, uh, of course, whether it was randomized. So taking some of these elements and saying, look, more of these elements were actually in place that makes for a good study. After going through the peer review process, it's one good data point. It's one good study, one good data point. We will eventually get more. And that's how it goes. But based on the information we have now, it seems dexamethasone is probably the best of the three, we'll get more studies, we'll get more information. I can't predict what those things are going to say, but at this point, this is the information we have, and we have to be willing and comfortable to say, this is what we have, it's limited, I don't know beyond this, but we'll act on the information we have now.
2: And it's worth pursuing.
3: I mean, the bottom line is it's worth pursuing, so, and we'll find out. I think the appropriate lightning round answer to that question is that being a doctor takes patience.
0: Oh, oh, yeah. I think I, I think <laughs> it I, took I hear me a minute. I think there's a, somebody with a thumbnail that really, really needs to be seen right now. Uh, <laughs> that, 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 was, that was so bad.
3: Thank you, Marcus. Thank you, Will. And thank you, Dr. Shaw. To the three of you and our audience, I'll say that I'm sorry, but not sorry for that horrible pun. Somehow, some way, during these times of distance, we still have to find ways to connect with each other. And sometimes a really bad joke that makes you groan and laugh even though you didn't want to is just what's needed. Laughter, to paraphrase the old Reader's Digest regular feature, can sometimes be the best medicine. Given where we are today, the science we have so far, and the resources we currently have, remember, isolate if you don't feel well, wash your hands, maintain social distance whenever you can, and when you can't, mask up, AZ. My mask protects you, your mask protects me. Hashtag mask up, AZ. Our roundtable returns in two weeks, but The Spark will be back next week with a different hot topic for you. Literally because as we swing into summer, we're pulling together a dialogue on excessive heat and its effect on Arizona's health and well-being. In the meantime, don't hesitate to delve into our back catalog of episodes. Last week's statewide food systems discussion is already another big hit, like our affordable housing episode from late May and our episode from early June that focused on the art and practice of storytelling. And there is so much more to explore related to community health and well-being in our other episodes too, including guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or, listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. In the world of podcasts, you can give us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overdrive, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.